Ask London, part 11, final part of this series. I'm going to bring it to a conclusion this morning. We have spent 10 weeks now trying to engage with the various questions and objections that that real people have, friends of us, have about the the Christian faith, and we've done our best to engage with those 10 questions. And this morning, we're going to bring this series to an end by looking, I would argue, at the most critical question of the whole lot, which is this, did Jesus actually come back to life again? Did Jesus actually come back to life again? Um, you probably know the illusionist and mentalist Darren Brown. You've probably seen his amazing stuff that he does with his various shows. Um, you might not know that Darren Brown was a Christian in his teenage years. He went to a church down the road in Croydon, not too far from here, before in his 20s. His worldview changed pretty significantly and he became an atheist and still holds to an atheist worldview. And he's just uh, finished a stage show called Miracle. And in the second half of his stage show, it's mainly centered around uh, really attempting to expose Christianity for being not much more than a trick of the mind. That's the kind of nature and the premise of the second half of his show. And I think it's going to be on uh, on TV next month. And recently, he gave uh, quite an extensive interview in which I thought he spoke very eloquently, very honestly, very interestingly. And one thing particularly jumped out from this long 90-minute interview that he gave. And he said this very simply, for all my objections about the Christian faith, he said this, it all comes down to whether the resurrection was a real event. A 90-minute interview, loads of contentions and objections about the Christian faith. He said, really, it all comes down to whether the resurrection was a real event. And I think he's absolutely right. It does all come down to whether the resurrection really happened. If it wasn't a real event, if it didn't happen, then as worthy and important as all the questions and objections we've heard are, they kind of pale into insignificance in some way. What I mean by that is, if you're here this morning, or you have been here in this series, and you've struggled with what Christianity has to say about maybe uh, sexuality, or gender, or, or judgment, or creation, really, if Jesus didn't come back to life again, those things kind of are irrelevant. You don't have to worry about those things if Jesus didn't rise from the dead again. And for Christians, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then as Paul, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith is in vain. He put it even more bluntly than that. Paul wasn't messing around. He said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we, Christians, of all people, are most to be pitied. Christians are the most pitiable people if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So I think Paul and Darren Brown both agree and are both right. It all comes down to whether the resurrection was a real event or not. If it was a real event, if it did happen, the implications are enormous. It means that the natural world is not all there is, that there is something else. It means that Jesus was the absolute revelation of God. It means that all that Jesus taught is vindicated. It means that death is not the end. And it means that God has decisively intervened into this world in order to bring about a new world, to resurrect it, to renew this one. The implications of the resurrection, if it happened, if it's a real event, as Darren Brown forces us to think, are massive. The stakes are pretty high. If it didn't happen, Christians, we need to call the whole thing off. If it did happen, and you're exploring the Christian faith, this is the key thing on which everything hinges. Stakes are pretty high. So, I would say, if you don't normally take notes, this might be a good one to make an exception for, because I'm going to go at a reasonable pace, because I want to get quite a lot in. Um, And also, it's going to have a kind of a 
academic-ish slant to it in the sense that I'm not going to spend a long time looking at the, the Bible as such, or I am, but not verses of. I'm going to go as best I can through the evidence that is there from a kind of relatively, at least for my little brain, scholarly kind of view. So it might help to be taking some notes or even taking the old picture of the screen in front of you because I'm going to go at a reasonable pace. So buckle up. Here we go. Five steps. Step one. Are miracles impossible? Are miracles impossible? I think this is the best place to start, just to ask this question first of all. Because for many people, it feels like there isn't much point investigating the resurrection because people don't rise from the dead. It doesn't happen. So why would you investigate something that doesn't happen? And I've got a great deal of sympathy with that point of view because people don't generally rise from the dead again. It's perfectly reasonable to say that. It's completely outside of what we know to be natural. So it's totally reasonable to set the, if you like, evidence bar pretty high if you want to be persuaded that the resurrection was a real event. And that word evidence is quite important that I've just mentioned because I think there's a popular view now that um, belief in the supernatural is like in one realm and belief in the natural is in a different realm. Or to put it a different way, you need faith to believe in something supernatural whereas you need only evidence to believe in something natural. That's quite a common view now, and I guess it goes back to the Enlightenment era. Philosophers like David Hume, you probably have heard of him. He said that, he said that really you can't argue, he said that no kind of miracle can be argued from an evidential perspective. There's not evidence for it, so there's no point trying to investigate it. He said the resurrection is a miracle, and miracles are outside the realm of evidence and history. That's been quite a key line of thought from the Enlightenment onwards. So that means evidence to history. What do we mean by history? Or just to be honest with you, what do I mean by history in the next few moments? Probably the least controversial thing I'll say this morning is that history is those set of events that happened in the past. I think we can probably all agree on that. But if we want to narrow the definition and say history is a set of events that we can only explain naturalistically, as Hume would encourage us to do, then we have to rule out the resurrection before we get started. So I'm talking about history as a set of events that happened in the past, and I don't think it's unreasonable to analyse the assumed facts around the resurrection, around that period in history, before seeking to explain what might be the best explanation for those evidences, for those pieces of evidence. I'm no published historian, but as a former history teacher, that would seem to me to be a reasonable way of going about this historical controversy. Basically, my point is, if we don't rule out miracles as impossible from the beginning, then I think we can still study the events surrounding the resurrection historically and come to a conclusion, which may be the resurrection or may not be the resurrection. Yeah. So, if the resurrection can be investigated historically, premise one, can we study the Bible as historical documentation in that investigation? Step two, can the New Testament account of the resurrection be studied as history? Because for many people, that's where they would maybe draw the next line and say, no, you can't study the New Testament as a historical document. That's an untenable proposition because it was written ages after the event. Or we've only got copies, the original text, and so copies after copies, and that's like Chinese whispers, you can't trust that. Or the New Testament, it's, like it's got a huge agenda, a huge bias, so you can't trust it that way. Many people would say you can't use the New Testament as part of your historical investigation. But critical scholars 
which is, just to be clear, is not people who just kind of blog or comment on Western websites. I'm talking about people with PhDs and, and doctorates and masters, people with established seats in good universities who've got published work and so on. Those kinds of people seem to be saying now, no, it's not unreasonable to read the New Testament as a historical piece of work to draw your conclusions. Let me unpack that a little bit more. This is um, Dr. Gary Habermas. He is a, or the Distinguished Professor of Apologetics and Philosophy and Chairman of the Department of Philosophy and Theology at Liberty University of Virginia, which is a nice title to have after your name. I'd like that on my, uh, on my office door. And he uh, specializes in the New Testament and the resurrection in particular, and kind of, he specializes in analyzing academic trends of thought around the New Testament and the resurrection specifically. He has read apparently 35,000 articles and papers about the resurrection from all kinds of different schools of thought, Christians, skeptics, Hindus, and so on and so forth. So I think he's worth listening to on this subject. Now I'm only going to skim the surface of what he has to say. So if you want to find out more, go to his website, look on YouTube. There's lots of interesting lectures and things that he, he says. And I'm just going to obviously skim the kind of his uh, lifelong work, which I hope you won't mind. And he, he points out that New Testament scholars, including scholars like Bart Ehrman, who you may have heard of, not a Christian agnostic guy, wouldn't believe in the resurrection. Many of those types of scholars would say that with a proper critical scholarly approach, then it's perfectly reasonable to investigate the New Testament as historical evidence. It doesn't prove the resurrection. They're just saying this stuff stands up to historical interrogation as we generally see documentation. Let me give you three reasons why they think that, why these whole bunch of critical scholars think that. The first thing that makes them think that is the whole issue of the timeline. So according to the timeline that we best have as, as historians, um, Jesus died around about AD 30, and the early church began overnight. And what we think is the kind of conservative consensus, the conservative consensus would say that Mark's gospel was written in around 70, 75 AD, Matthew in 80, Luke in 85, John in 90. And because we know that Paul died in AD 65, we know that obviously his writings came even earlier, even closer to Jesus' uh, life and death. Now, the point is that all these texts were written during the lifetime of a number of people who were around at Jesus' time. That's quite an important issue for critical scholars. Interestingly, scholars would say it takes around about 70 years after the last witness of the event has died for something that didn't happen to become history, for like myth and legend to become history. It takes about 70 years after the last person's gone. And yet, as you can see from the timeline here, all these key accounts of Jesus' life, death, and led resurrection were all written during the lifetime of people who witnessed these things. If you can compare that with other ancient documents, such as Alexander the Great, probably all heard of him, his biography, the first, the original version, was written 400 years after his life. And yet that's deemed to be credible historical documentation for knowing about his life. Second thing is the issue of the copies that we have of the New Testament manuscripts. Now, I'm not going to go into detail here, not because I'm ducking it, but because we've already covered it in an earlier talk. So Paul, um, not the Apostle Paul, the Pastor Paul, covered this in an earlier talk, earlier in the series. So the whole issue of copies 
and manuscripts is in, in, uh, a big deal for you, go back to that talk about 10 minutes in and Paul unpacks very clearly why, from a critical scholarly point of view, what we have today, the copies of the original texts, are very, very reliable. In simple terms, it's because of the very small gap between the original versions written then and the manuscripts we have now, the small time gap. And it's also because of the number of manuscripts that we have, which is enormous, and the consistency between them. But listen to his talk, and he'll tell you more about that issue. Third thing that gives scholars confidence in the New Testament um, text is the nature of some of the texts that is in the New Testament. Let me give you a couple of examples. But first to say, just to be clear, the Bible is best described, I think, as a library. It's a library of 66 books with lots of different genres and types in that 66. You've got books that have a genre of, of poetry or law or parable or wisdom literature, lots of different genres. But it's very clear that the gospel accounts are written as a genre of history. Scholars are clear that someone like Luke, for example, who wrote his gospel account, he is not writing, he's not trying to write fiction. They would say it's very clear the type of writing he's used is very different to the type of fictional genre used at the time. He's trying to write history, they would say. Let me give you an example. This is Luke chapter 3, verse 1 to 3. Those of you who like your details will enjoy Luke's style of writing. Look at how much detail he goes into. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis. Just read it fast and your pronunciation goes fine. It's my logic. And Lasinius, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Basically, Luke's saying, fact check me. It's what Luke's saying. I'm trying to write history here. I'm doing my best to tell you what I think happened at this time of history. 1 Corinthians 15 is a really fascinating text. Let me explain to you why. I'm thinking about verses 3 to 7 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, we know that Paul died in AD 65, and we know that he wrote this letter to the church in Corinth in AD 55, pretty close to Jesus' death and alleged resurrection. But what he says here, I think, is even more interesting. He's writing to the church in Corinth, writing a letter. He says, I'm delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, scholars, in their own scholarly way, get very, very excited about this text. They sort of might even break a pen in half in amazing uh, excitement. And the reason why they're especially intrigued is because there is consensus amongst them, atheist, agnostic, Christian scholars, there's consensus amongst them that Paul is not actually using his own words in this text. They're pretty clear that he's quoting early Christian creed. So he's not writing his own words, he's actually quoting what's been in circulation for quite a while. And scholars would say that bit of text comes from early Christian creed within a decade, they reckon, of Jesus' death. In fact, the Durham University Emeritus Professor James Dunn would go further and say that comes from within months. So scholars have worked out that little bit of text, it's like a bit of liturgy, That was in circulation amongst the early church, maybe within months of Jesus' death. 
Now, why do scholars break their pens in excitement over that? Two reasons. One, that means we've got a piece of text here that is, for an ancient document, is incredibly close to the original event that it's talking about. Maybe months. That is like seconds for an ancient document. That makes it highly credible in scholars' eyes. Paul's writing in 55 AD, but he's quoting something that was being said maybe within months, certainly years, of AD 30. You compare that to the information on Alexander the Great, but it's 400 years after he lived. That's why the scholars get quite excited about this as a historical document. Second reason they get excited is that the early church, according to this, it's clear that the early church was preaching Jesus' death and resurrection maybe within months of it happening. So they're saying it looks like we can't say that the resurrection was something that was invented a hundred years after it happened. It looks very clear that the early church had this kind of thing as their liturgy maybe within months of it happening. That's what they were believing then in the AD 30s, not something that was concocted in the second century. Can you see why they get excited? Some of you can. <laughs> Some of you can. That's good. So breathe. Take a breath at this point. What are we saying? What am I putting to you at least? One, I'm saying that unless we short-circuit the process with a philosophical bias against miracles, then it's perfectly reasonable to investigate the resurrection as a possible conclusion to the events in history. Two, I'm saying from a critical scholarship point of view, it's reasonable to analyze the Gospels and the writings of Paul as historical documentation. In fact, some of the writings are very, very close to the nature of the events themselves and very, very specific in nature. None of this proves Jesus came back to life again. But because of like point one and two that I've just said, scholars have come to conclude that they can say that there are three other facts. There's a scholarly consensus amongst Professor Habermas and his scholarly people, atheists, agnostic Christians, that say there are three facts that emerge that we've got to provide an answer for. If it's not the resurrection, we've got to provide an alternative answer for it. So, step three this morning. What are the facts that the scholars agree surround the resurrection based on how they investigate these things? Fact one they agree on is that Jesus certainly died. It's worth pointing that out because a number of people would say maybe Jesus didn't die. In fact, that's what Islam teaches. Until recently, I had a, I had a Muslim flatmate and that's what he, he believed. This chap behind me is Dr. Nabil Qureshi. He's a fascinating guy, raised as a Muslim, very credible Muslim scholar and apologist. And through his uh, intellectual studies, he actually came to decide that Jesus did not only die, but also rose again. He's a fascinating guy to listen to about his own background and journey. Nothing in him uh, was gearing him towards accepting what he's accepted. So go onto YouTube. If you're interested, watch his lectures. He's a great communicator, credible academic and intellect, very interesting story. And one of the things he would say is that Jesus certainly died, and scholars would agree with that. And he points out, for example, there is not one single historical document anywhere that says anybody ever survived crucifixion. We don't have anything suggesting that was possible. We have one example of one guy who got taken down early because the Roman officer saw it was his mate and took him down before we got into the midst of crucifixion. I'm getting into detail. Back onto the main things. Second fact that the scholars agree on. Empty tomb. The tomb was certainly empty. And scholars are persuaded the tomb was definitely empty for a couple of reasons. 
If I'm going too fast, can someone just kind of just, just do that, and I'll slow down. That would really help me, because I've got a lot to get in, but I don't want to bomb on. So just like, do that. Two reasons why the tomb is empty for scholars. One is because of the accusation of the Jewish authorities. So when the disciples, like within days, it was within days, it seems, began proclaiming that Jesus had really had risen and come back to life again, the accusation from the Jewish authorities was that the disciples had stolen the body. Now that's important because their accusation wasn't the disciples are crazy. These guys are delusional. They're drunk. That wasn't the accusation they made. Neither did they say, um, body's here, as they would always do with another messianic rebel figure who was crucified. What they did say was, the disciples, you've stolen the body. Why is that important? Because therefore we have evidence that the tomb was definitely empty. Not from proponents of Christianity, but from its earliest and most fierce critics. They're saying the tomb is empty. They come to a different conclusion, but it helps us establish that the tomb was definitely empty. Second reason why scholars are convinced the tomb was empty is because it was women who were reported as being the chief witnesses of the empty tomb. Now we're going to wince at these words from a 21st century uh, equality point of view, but the uh, Jewish historian Josephus helps us understand why it's a big deal that women were purported to witness the resurrection. Josephus says this, he's a Jewish historian, due to the levity and temerity of their sex, women should not be allowed to testify in court. And that was a very commonly held view at the time. Women's testimony was deemed to be worthless and not credible at all in a court of law. And that is a big deal because you would assume that any kind of later legendary account of the resurrection would almost certainly have made male disciples like Peter and, and John. They would have been the chief witnesses of the empty tomb. In fact, some scholars say it's likely that the early Christian movement would have come under some pressure to take that bit out because it really wasn't helping their case at all. The fact that women were reported as the first witnesses of the empty tomb is best explained by the fact that they were the witnesses of the empty tomb and the gospel writers are faithfully recording what for them, frankly, is a rather awkward fact. So, Jesus definitely died. Tomb was definitely empty. Third fact scholars are agreed upon that the disciples believed that Jesus had risen. They definitely believed Jesus had risen. That's an important fact to put out there because there is a point of view that would say, no, the disciples concocted a conspiracy, stole the body, made something up, and it was a conspiracy that managed to um, get into history. And scholars think that's not the case, and there are four reasons why they think the disciples definitely believed, at least, that Jesus had risen. One is quite simple, really. History does not seem to be littered with people dying for something they know not to be true. One philosopher or academic put it rather pithily when he said, liars make poor martyrs. Doesn't mean it never happens. Just means it's very unlikely to happen. That you go to your death insisting something to be true that you deliberately made up. Secondly, in terms of why it's not a conspiracy theory. Um, because I'm a fascinating person, I listen to Radio 4 Today program often on the morning, in the morning. And a while ago, um, they had a fascinating little item on the Today program, Radio 4. And they were reporting the research of an Oxford physicist called Dr. David Grimes. And he had done some research into conspiracy theories, which is probably a fascinating thing to research into. And his research led him to conclude that you could kind of have some stats for how conspiracy theories work. 
For example, he reckoned that for a plot to last five years, you could have about 2,500 people in on it, and it would last five years before it broke down. I'll move further forward in his research. He said, if you want a conspiracy to last for a century, it generally happens when there's no more than about 100 conspirators, and it will last for 100 years before it also comes apart. If you want a conspiracy to last for 20 centuries, the obvious conclusion is you really don't want very many people part of the conspiracy at all. And yet, over 500 witnesses are purported to have seen the risen Jesus. That's a lot of people for a conspiracy to last 20 centuries. He would say that just doesn't happen according to his research. Third thing that means scholars are agreed on the disciples' conviction that Jesus definitely rose from the dead is, and this might be new to you maybe, is that the disciples really had every reason not to believe in the resurrection. So if you listen to Christopher Hitchens, he would say these guys are, in his words, Bronze Age delusional peasants just very ready and to accept anything. But scholars say it's not the case. They would say resurrection, the idea of it was just as much a challenge to uh, the Jewish people and ancient pagans as it is to us, natural, secular types, 21st century. And actually, it's probably a little bit of chronological snobbery, cultural snobbery that goes with the idea that they were much more vulnerable than we would be to resurrection. There are four little factors to that. Four subpoints. First of all, there was no messianic tradition that the, mess- the Messiah would be executed as a common criminal, let alone would rise from the dead. So, under the Jewish tradition, they were expecting a Messiah who would throw off the Romans in triumph and re establish the throne of David in Jerusalem. That was their expectation. Nothing in that talked about somebody being murdered as a common criminal and rising again. Secondly, the Jewish law in Deuteronomy, I should re-establish that, sorry. There are some prophetic things in the Old Testament that help us understand that was the plan. But for the general Jewish worldview, they were expecting a particular type of Messiah, just to be clear. Secondly, the Jewish law in Deuteronomy shows that someone executed as a common criminal would be under the curse of God. That's important. Why? Because for the disciples, Jesus' crucifixion executed as a common criminal, was not just a catastrophe because he'd been killed in an awful fashion. It was a catastrophe because it showed them that the Jewish authorities had been right all along. They'd been following a heretic, and this was the curse of God that had taken place. Thirdly, Jewish beliefs about the resurrection precluded anyone from rising from the dead before the general resurrection at the end of the world. What does that mean? It means the Jewish people believed in a resurrection of all people, but at the end of all times, at the end of the world, when God would restore and renew the world and bring justice and mercy and eradicate sickness and death, then there'd be a resurrection of the dead. But the idea for them that one person could be resurrected in the middle of history while sickness and death and continued was inconceivable. It was not in their worldview at the time. And... For a Jew to believe that a human being was God was utterly blasphemous, unthinkable. And yet within days of Jesus' death, that's what hundreds of Jews are believing. In fact, just another little textual thing for you, in Philippians 2, there's a little hymn that Paul quotes. Just like he was quoting early church creed in 1 Corinthians 15, in Philippians 2 he quotes a hymn that was in common uh, use 
And that hymn talks about Jesus being God. And scholars reckon that hymn was written in the first few years after Jesus' death and life. So within a few years, people have got in their established liturgy, worshipping the idea of Jesus and God, a previously unthinkable premise for Jewish people. No hands going up at the moment, so I'm going to keep bombing on. One more reason. Not only that Jesus' friends believe in the resurrection, the women, Mary and so on, Peter and so on. Also, scholars are persuaded or are moved to break into the pen in excitement because some of his enemies believed it. Think about it. If you know anything about the New Testament, you'll know that James, Jesus' brother, in Mark 6, we learn that James and Jesus' family came along and started worshipping Jesus as God. Nope. They came along and told him he was out of his mind. Crazy. And yet after Jesus' death, James becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem and non-biblical evidence tells us that he went to his death because of it. Why? What about Paul? The apostle Paul had no reason to accept or want to see the risen Jesus. Paul was a powerful Pharisee, renowned for his intellect and mind and respectability. He was studying under a famous um, uh, rabbi called Gamaliel, a very prestigious seat of learning. He was busy killing and persecuting Christians. Paul had every reason to remain within the orthodox Jewish faith rather than convert from killing Christians to being one. And why would he have gone on to die for that very faith, for the belief that Jesus rose from the dead? A chap called Professor Ludemann, who's a German academic, he's a leading critic of the resurrection, doesn't believe in it. But he does say this, he does admit this, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and Paul and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. That's someone who doesn't believe in the resurrection but has looked at the evidence from a critical scholarly point of view and is convinced the disciples definitely believed there was the risen Lord Jesus. None of this proves that he did rise from the dead but what we have said is the scholarly consensus that Jesus certainly died, the tomb was certainly empty and the disciples certainly believed that they had met the risen Lord Jesus. Four, step four. What are we to conclude and of course, this is where the disagreement comes. <laughs> a bit less consensus on this one. Well, actually, not so much. According to Professor Habermas, remember him? Amongst the critical scholarship of which he is part and the 35,000 documents that he's read, the majority, not a huge majority, but the majority of scholars conclude that the explanation for these agreed facts is, I don't know. That's the primary consensus amongst these critical scholars is they say, we don't know what happened. It looks like it's coming down towards 50%, but at the moment it's just the majority. And they would say, we're not satisfied with the resurrection as an answer because we just cannot entertain the possibility of miracles. So we don't know. But they would also say, neither are we satisfied with any of the other explanations. So they're left in a position which academics and scholars hate, which is, I don't know. So, after we don't know, the next uh, scholarly consensus is Jesus rose again. That's the second most popular opinion. The third is the theory of hallucination. The idea that the disciples, yes, definitely believed they'd met with the risen Jesus really strongly, but they believed that because they'd hallucinated. 
it seems that 5 to 10% of critical scholars would hold that view, which makes it the third most popular one. Only 5 to 10%. Now, if you go to Professor Habermas's website, he, as academics like to do, he provides 19 different reasons why the hallucination theory doesn't stand up. And I'm going to go through each one of those. No, I won't go. <laughs> but what I will say is this. Hallucination is certainly a well-documented medical phenomenon for bereaved people. We do know that does happen, that bereaved people do hallucinate and often see the person that they wish was still here. But what has never been documented, as far as we're aware, is an incident of mass hallucination. It's very hard to conceive of 500-plus people all having the same hallucination. It seems to me that if you want to not say, I don't know, if you want to deny the miracle of the resurrection, you have to create a miracle of mass hallucination, for which there's no evidence. And if the disciples did hallucinate through grief, why did Paul hallucinate? He didn't have any of the same reasons to hallucinate. He wasn't grieving at all. Quite the opposite. He was going around killing Christians. So why would he have had the same hallucination? And that's why perhaps only 5-10% of scholars would go with that line of thought. So, you guys are doing brilliantly. I think we're all on the same page. Or at least we're sticking with me, I should say that. I don't want to assume anything else. Unless you want to rule out miracles as an impossibility from the beginning, which, if I could just push on that, does seem to be quite a subjective approach to trying to investigate something objectively then it seems that the resurrection is the best explanation for the events that took place. And if God does exist, and that's where we started this whole series 11 weeks ago, when my little brain had a bit of space back then, we investigated whether there is a God, and we decided that there was at least credible evidence to say there is a God. And so if there is a God, and he is the force behind this cosmos, and he's the one that put the Big Bang into operation and has caused life to emerge and, and caused life to be sustained, if there is a God like that, then of course a miracle can take place. If you can put galaxies and the cosmos into action, then the miracle of resurrection is more than philosophically feasible if there is a God. So it does seem, if you're a Christian, this is great news. This is why Peter says we need to have reasons for our faith, because there are good reasons to stand for something which does seem to be ludicrous, and yet I would suggest is actually the best historical explanation for the facts that are there. Good reason to be confident in the gospel. What are the implications of this? This is my last step, step five, implications. What are the implications? Because this is not just a, a, a hope, <laughs> a dusty, dry, intellectual, theoretical discussion. If this is true, go back to Darren Brown's question. If the resurrection is a real event, it has massive implications. It means that the natural world is not all there is. That there is a God who's intervened decisively. It means that God, in raising Jesus, vindicated him as the direct revelation of himself. You look at Jesus, we look at what God is like. Thirdly, it means that given that Jesus taught, excuse me, given that Jesus taught that he would, he predicted that he would die and rise again in three days, it means that we can trust everything else that he taught. Even the really hard things even the things that go right to the core of who we feel we are, 
that challenged us deeply. We can trust those things. Doesn't mean we stop questioning them or investigating them, but it means that we can trust everything that he taught, including the hard stuff, and we can trust that it must be ultimately for our good. That's really important. Fourthly, the implication of resurrection is not only was our sin nailed to the cross and buried with Jesus, but that faith unites us to new life with Jesus. Without the resurrection, we have something to celebrate, but it is no, by no means complete. If we're willing to let our old sinful self die with him, nailed to the cross, buried in the tomb, and faith unites us to new resurrected life. That's why the Bible says that a Christian is a new creation, someone with a new heart, someone who can make a new beginning. That's why every day is a new start for a Christian, because it's resurrection life that Jesus has won for us. The Christian life is about life. It's about freedom, as we heard this morning, not being yoked to anything else but the freedom of a brand new life that Jesus has won. Fifthly, the implication of the resurrection is that death is not the end. I listened to, my wife and I listened to a story this week which really moved us. I wasn't going to mention this, but I'll try and explain it best I can. About a 14-year-old girl who um, was passing away from cancer and her grandparents and parents, cut a long story short, fought a quite a bitter uh, court case to ensure that she could be uh, chirogenically, that's the right word, frozen in case, as the decades and centuries went on, people found a cure to her cancer and she could be brought back to life again. That's such a sad case for many, many reasons. But it just reminded me that that, this is the thing that humanity's been fighting for centuries. Why can't we beat death? It's a thing that no worldview has been able to fully explain or certainly not defeat. And the implication of the resurrection is that death has been defeated. Doesn't mean it won't come to all of us but the implication of resurrection is that Jesus has punched through death and faith unites us to him and we get to punch through death as well and come the, out the other side. The resurrection is enormously important. And finally, you might not expect me to finish with this, but the resurrection also means that this world really matters. Jesus' resurrection was the beginning of God's cosmic plan, just as the Jewish tradition taught, to resurrect the earth, to restore it, to renew it, and the resurrection is the first fruits of that. You see, faith in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus does not mean that when you die, you disappear to an ethereal place in heaven where there seem to be an enormous number of harps. That's not what Christianity teaches And the resurrection is key here because the resurrection says that through faith in that accomplishment, I and you are joined to his plan to resurrect and restore and bring life to this earth. And the resurrection was the moment that plan was kickstarted into being. And faith in Christ joins me into that. It doesn't join me to a distant hope that I'll go to a cloud after I die. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is here. That's what he kept on saying. And he kept on demonstrating it by, by heavenly things overlapping what was going on, healings and so forth. Heaven is overlapping earth. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, a Christian gets to join in with that. 
So we did a series called Perspective on 1 Peter to try and fix our minds on what's to come, which is not an eternity singing songs on a cloud. It's an eternity on this earth with a brand new resurrected body, another fruit of the resurrection, with the perfection of heaven having fully overlapped and consumed and renewed and perfected this earth. And so the life of a Christian is to use our abundant life that Jesus promises that he can give because he beat death to give us life. It's to use resurrected life, which is your skills and your gifts and your time and your money and the way that you've been wired and the things that you're good at. Resurrected life means you get to use those things by the power of the Holy Spirit to continue to bring the kingdom of heaven to this place, Kingston, London, this nation. The resurrection means that the kingdom of heaven is here and is coming more and more and more. It's not here yet, but it will be fully here. And so when you work through your gifts and talent and time and character and maybe sacrifice to bring justice or mercy or kindness or beauty or creativity, when you cause those things to to come to this place now, you are building the kind of place this earth will be forever. A place of mercy and beauty and kindness and justice and creativity. Art and music and and all kinds of things can bring the kingdom of heaven to earth now. The resurrection means that a Christian is united to Jesus, receives abundant life now, and gets the privilege of partnering with him to bring little bits to earth of his kingdom knowing that one day he will fully complete the whole work. And the little bit of mercy that you dropped into Kingston, the little bit of beauty through art that you dropped into London, will be here when Jesus comes to fully renew and complete the whole work. We're called to build the kingdom of heaven on earth, not wait to get to heaven. See the difference? The implication of the resurrection is just massive. Jamie, come and help us, if you would, and uh, Christina Mecca to respond in singing. I've gone pretty fast, but as part of I wanted to make time that we could worship and respond. I know I've given a lot of information, I know it felt like a lecture at times, but I can't think of any better way to respond, even if your mind is sort of thinking, well, what about this? What? Than by focusing on the fundamentals of the Christian faith, the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. Jamie's going to lead us in that. There's a prayer team over here who are going to be in a second in this space out here. I guess I was thinking of a number of responses and trying to follow Paul's example last week of being crisp and concise about it. One is, we don't want to be prescriptive about how you respond to God's presence on a Sunday morning. My wife's helped me with this an awful lot. We want you to be able to respond in any way to the fact that we believe God is here. So if you want to come and receive a touch from God through prayer for anything at all, why not do that? The resurrection has caused abundant life to be available. Come and receive a a prayer, a touch of abundant life for whatever this week holds, whether you know it or not. Might be a challenge, might be that you want to ask God for blessings and celebrations and the good things, it might be for abundant life to come in the hard things. You can pray with the prayer team or the person you're with. Secondly, I want you to think about this challenge to a Christian of resurrection life being the main motivating and empowering factor to bring the kingdom of heaven to this place. 
What does that mean for you? I'm looking around here with just seeing the gifts and the talents. is like frightening out here. Amazing skills, abilities, gift sets, passions, all kinds of things. The kingdom of heaven on earth is going to be just, how do you describe it, when all the best things of our life become even better. So what does it mean for you to bring something of the heavenly dimension to this place? that we point people towards what this place will ultimately be. And finally, maybe you're here because you've been exploring this stuff. This is the bottom line. It really is. If Darren Brown, his challenge is good. If the resurrection really happens, it's a game changer. I would say put your faith in that. Put your faith in Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, receive abundant life. And the other things will work themselves out in time and will help you do that at your pace. But this is the bottom line. If he rose again, abundant life is available now and forever. If he didn't, forget the whole thing. But he did. And we should have confidence and we should be excited. And at the moment we should stand and we should sing and we should worship and we should proclaim the truth and the confidence that is fitting for a Christian to proclaim. As Peter said in the book of Peter, we do have reasons for our faith. We have reasons to be humble because we didn't deserve it and reasons to be supremely confident because it's definitely happens. Do you agree? Do you agree? Okay, let's stand and sing. Lord Jesus, we do want to stand before you and we say even if our mind is swimming a bit and we're not quite sure about all of this stuff, If we're a Christian in this room this morning, we say we worship you for your amazing resurrection, that you beat death. It's not the end. The conundrum of humanity forever has been decided and defeated through your amazing accomplishment and through being united to that accomplishment. We can know the life both now and forever. And so we say, Jesus, at the end of this series, build this church with confidence, build this church with passion for the gospel convictions about the truths of our faith that we might be the ones who replicate and represent the heavenly things to this place and this nation and this context and this culture God we say use us limited though we are bring your spirit and your power to us that we might bring the kingdom of heaven and its beauty and its perfection and its mercy and justice to our friends, our family, our context and our workplace and our culture we say along with Jesus Christ himself your kingdom come heaven on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.